Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sandra, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Genomics and the Future of Cancer Treatment. Now, this workshop is actually one that many of you have shown great interest in, I have to say, um, way beyond our expectations. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in this program and actually, much of and many of our um, many people's efforts to promote the program, we have on the call today over 639 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban and rural and suburban areas, and we also have international participants, actually quite a few, from Australia, Canada, France, Germany, India, Mexico, Poland. Sweden, Taiwan, Turkey, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So really, it's a bit of a global call, actually, with all of you on the call today. And uh, today's program is supported by Bayer Oncology, Loxell Oncology, and Foundation Medicine. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, we have the best speakers on this call today. I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Raul Tibbs, and Dr. Tibbs is actually Director, Clinical Leukemia Program, Lauren Isaac Promoter Cancer Center, Associate Professor, NYU School of Medicine, Scholar in Clinical Research, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, NYU Langone Health. And Dr. Tibbs is going to address defining genomics, precision medicine, targeted treatments, and genomics, the value of early testing to inform your treatment choices, and current research on genomics. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Teves. Yeah, hi everybody. Um, Carolyn, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on the program. I've been on the program before, and I'm tasked to giving the introduction and an overview about genomics, genetics, as well as targeted treatments in cancer. So genes or DNA, genes and DNA, it's the blueprint of our genetic information. So everything that we are, that's, that we are made of, it's written down in the genes. Those are the letters, those are the sentences, like um, a big encyclopedia of, of who we are. And all of you heard about genes and chromosomes, the genes that sit on the chromosomes. And if you may remember, um, everybody, every human has 23 chromosomes, uh, sorry, 46, 23 from the mother and 23 from the father. So it makes 46. And the genes, they are lined up on those chromosomes. So that's why we have changes in cancer, in chromosomes, but also in genes. And many of you may have heard about mutations. Those are changes, individual changes in certain genes that can take out or inhibit or take out the function of a gene or even activate genes. And what is genomics now? <clears throat> genomics now is the interplay and the influence between many, many genes, a group of genes together in forming and making the genetic information into cellular function, into biology, and into who and what we are. Genomics and is also the influence of the environment. So genomics is not just what genes do to us and how genes form us, but it's also genes and genomics can be influenced by the environment. We know this through smoking. We know this through nutrition. So there's a, an interplay between the genetic information that we all carry in ourselves and the environment, and that's very important. So what about genomics now? The definition of genomics is the study of genes and their function together as a group of genes and how they determine the cellular function and the biology of what we are and who we are. This is important because over the last couple of years and decades, um, actually, researchers were able to identify, A, all of the genes that are in the human body, and more and more characterize what went wrong in specific or individual genes, and as well as the regulation of genes in human disease, particularly in cancer. So a breast cancer has 
different genes that are altered or changed than a prostate cancer or, or leukemia, which is my specialty, for example. So not every disease has the same genetic and molecular changes um, that we can find. So the study of the genes, the genomics, and all of those molecular studies and genomic medicine, what you've heard over the last couple of years and decades, is essentially understanding better what is happening inside the cell and then inside a cancer cell, how those genes are changed, how they're abnormally shut down or activated, what's the interaction with the environment, what's the regulation of those genes, and how all of this together contributes and makes human disease and leads to cancer formation. So the first step of before we can develop better and precision medicine is actually understanding what's going wrong inside cancer cells on that molecular level on the regulation inside the cells. So once researchers and scientists do understand this, we can now develop better treatments because we know we have a much better and higher resolution. Sometimes I compare this to a telescope. If you have, a, if you have your eyes or a binocular, you can see the moon. But if you have a very high-resolution re telescope, you can actually see craters or maybe on the moon and, and structures on the moon. So now we have a much higher resolution with all the genomics and all the technologies, and my co-speakers will talk about some more of those technologies. We have a much better understanding what's actually happening inside cancer cells. Now over the last decades, more and more um, targeted therapies have been developed. So what are targeted therapies? Targeted therapies are treatments that are essentially aimed in being very specific, going after a few individual genes or proteins or enzymes inside this a cancer cell that hopefully are only abnormally switched on or turned on in cancer cells. Because the more precise you are and the more precise we can take out those abnormal regulations inside a cancer cell, the more we can spare the normal and healthy tissue. So going away from chemotherapy that had a lot of side effects of the normal tissue, we become more and more developing precision, becoming smarter about what to take out in a particular or in an individual patient's tumor. I should say that while our knowledge of the regulation and the biology of many cancers has dramatically improved, developing new targeted therapies is a little slower process. Fortunately, in every and many cancers, we're really learning very quickly in leukemias. Just last year, four new medications have been approved based on a genomic and molecular understanding of leukemia and having new drugs available. So we're making advances every year uh, in, in different tumor types and, and different um, yeah, cancer and tumor types. So this brings me to the value of early testing. So with the knowledge of what goes wrong in a cancer cell, we can test for it. So we have to develop tests and assays that can measure what's actually going wrong. And that's particularly important when we have treatments available, and particularly when those treatments make a difference in how we treat the patient. And the difference is, for example, if the responses are better or improve and increase if we add a certain targeted treatment to chemotherapy or if we just use a targeted treatment instead of chemotherapy because there's a higher chance of a patient to respond because we previously measured a certain gene or what's wrong with the gene and we can say this gene is abnormally activated in the patient's cancer cell. Now we have a targeted therapy that's specific for this gene. We can give it to the patient and the goal is to improve the specificity and be more precise and importantly, hopefully, or most of the times, we can also reduce side effects if we give targeted treatments. And there's a lot of um, research going on in genomics, as I mentioned, at many, many different tumor types. And it's not just about um, genomics, uh, it's also about the immune system. We also learn how the immune system or the genes influence the immune system and vice versa. Over the last several years, um, there were several immune regulatory uh, sorry, several, several mechanisms identified how the immune system is being shut down by cancer cells. And some of the new breakthrough in treatment is actually immune therapies that make cancer cells visible to the immune system again. And now it's the next steps is to understand how 
what is the influence between genetic and genomic changes in cancer cells and the immune system regulation and how can we exploit and use both to treat tumors more effectively. And this is both at the beginning when a patient is initially or newly diagnosed with a cancer. The best example is probably in breast cancer. Some of you may have heard about HER2-new. That's a protein on the, on, the, on the surface of the cancer cells. And there are um, antibodies available that shut down or block this her to new protein on breast cancer cells. So we incorporate in our genomic knowledge both for patients that are newly diagnosed, but also for patients that are relapsed or refractory or unfortunately where the therapies, the initial therapies stopped working, we can then reanalyze the patient's tumor and hope or try to find some new genomic and genetic changes and hopefully there would be another treatment available. So we're becoming, it's not just at the beginning or one or two times, we continuously measure and assess the patient's tumor for genomic changes and um, hopefully and more and more in more and more cases now we do have the tools, we have the targeted therapies available and then we can make different treatment decisions to treat a patient more precise at a reduced side effect profile and uh, more effectively. And I think with this, I would like to end and pass it back on to Caroline. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Tibbis. That was really wonderful. Um, excellent, excellent overview and wonderful setting the stage for this, this program. And thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr. Dr. Kerr is consultant, Division of Anatomic Pathology and Laboratory Genetics and Genomics. Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Assistant Professor, Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Director, Molecular Anatomic Pathology Laboratory, and Co-Director, Genomics Laboratory, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center. And Dr. Kerr is going to talk about the role of a pathologist, comprehensive genomic testing, in microarrays, DNA sequencing technologies, and liquid biopsies. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. I have the great pleasure of explaining what a pathologist does in the process of genomic testing for cancer treatment. I'll also explain a bit about what tests are used. I'm a pathologist that specializes both in the diagnosis of cancer and testing the cancer to, to predict what treat which treatments will work best, so this topic is near and dear to my heart. First, a pathologist is a doctor who specializes in laboratory testing. Pathologists can train in what is called anatomic pathology, which is the testing of tissues for diagnosis. In the context of our discussion today, anatomic pathologists are the doctors who examine cancer tissue under a microscope to decide what type of cancer is present. Determining the type of cancer present is the first step in determining which type of treatment is the most likely to work best. The Tumor type alone, without knowing anything about the genomics, may be the most helpful in determining a first-line treatment. Additionally, the type of cancer predicts which genomic testing could be the most cost-effective in finding a mutation that matches well with a targeted therapy. For example, a limited number of treatments are available for lung cancer, and some of the treatments will work best if a particular mutation is present. So testing for those specific mutations can be a more cost-effective way of identifying a treatment than a more expensive genomic test for many lung cancer patients. That first step that a pathologist does in determining the type of cancer present is really critical for determining the downstream testing decisions. The second way a pathologist is involved in genomic testing is to determine if enough cancer tissue is present for testing. For example, the pathologist may be in the room during a biopsy procedure to quickly examine the cells in the biopsy to determine if there are enough cells to make a diagnosis and to perform the needed genomic tests that we are talking about today. Some tests require more tissue than others, so it is important that a pathologist be aware of these testing differences and help your other doctors obtain the best possible biopsy specimen for what is needed. After a larger surgery, pathologists are responsible for storing cancer tissue samples embedded in wax blocks to preserve the tissue. This is also called formal infixed paraffin embedded tissue. These blocks of tissue can also be used for genomic testing. 
Some tests can also utilize glass slides that contain smears of tumor cells. When a test is ordered, the pathologist looks at the tissue available in storage and decides on the best block or slides to be used. Next, I'll talk about uh, what types of genomic tests are available. Cancer cells contain genetic material that is somewhat different than the rest of the body's normal cells. These changes in the genetic material help the cancer grow and survive. For example, normal cells, as we heard previously, contain 46 chromosomes or packets of DNA. And cancer cells can often contain extra copies or missing copies of whole chromosomes or parts of chromosomes. A number of words have been used to describe this, but extra copies are often called amplification. An example of this is HER2 amplification in breast cancer. Sometimes cancer chromosomes are connected to one another in a way that they would not be in normal cells. This can be called a gene fusion or a rearrangement. An example of this is rearrangement of the ALK gene in lung cancer. Chromosomes are made up of DNA, which is the language that cells use to grow and function. Small changes in the spelling of the DNA are called mutations. These tiny changes can drive cancer cells to grow, but can also be targeted with specific treatments. Some mutations can also prevent treatments from working, so it is important to test for these mutations before giving certain treatments. An example of this is in colon cancer. There are treatments that are directed to a gene called EGFR that will not work in colon cancers that have a mutation in a gene called KRAS, for example. So as you can see, this testing can be very complex. The type of test ordered depends upon tumor type and what type of DNA changes need to be detected to determine treatment. The least expensive type of test is a single gene test that looks for a small change in a specific gene. Single gene tests can look for one type of alteration at a time. For example, in lung cancer, separate tests can look for changes in genes called EGFR, ALK, or ROS1. Sometimes the single gene tests are combined into small panels of tests that are all run at the same time. This is often called targeted panel testing. Because biopsies are often small, however, it can be difficult to do multiple single gene tests or small panel tests before running out of tissue. Additionally, multiple single gene tests can together cost as much as a large genomic panel test if enough of the single gene tests are needed to determine treatment. Therefore, laboratories have developed tests that look at hundreds of genes or all of the chromosomes at one time. This can be called comprehensive genomic testing or large panel testing. These tests use newer technologies such as next-generation sequencing or microarrays to look at all of the chromosomes and much of the DNA sequence at the same time. These tests are more often used in unusual cancers for which the common mutations are not known or in tumors which, in which the common mutations are not identified using the less expensive, smaller, single-gene tests or targeted panels. Although finding a positive result that will impact treatment is not as common when the larger genomic panels are used second line, we are learning more about cancer genetics and treatment every day, which will make these larger panels eventually more useful for everyone. Some patients do have rare mutations identified on these larger genomic panels that are important for selecting an effective treatment. And then last, I was asked to talk about liquid biopsies. Liquid biopsies are used use blood samples from a routine blood draw to test cancer genetics. This can be done instead of a biopsy when the cancer cells are either present in the bloodstream or the cancer cells break down and release the DNA into the bloodstream. Very sensitive tests can look for specific mutations in the blood. An example of this is BRAF mutation in melanoma. At this point, these are very targeted tests looking for one mutation at a time but work is being done to expand large panel genomic testing to liquid biopsies as a way to see how a cancer may be changing throughout treatment without the patient having to undergo many invasive tissue biopsies. So like computers or cell phones, genetic testing of cancer is getting better over time while also becoming less expensive. The future of genomic testing is very encouraging from this standpoint. With that, I'll turn the conference back over to Dr. Messner.
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. That was really wonderful and, and very informative. And I think many people on the call often wonder about the pathologist and the access to the pathologist. And I think you've really helped people to understand the important role of pathologists, but also the, how accessible they are as well. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Bob Lee. Dr. Lee is attending medical oncologist, thoracic oncology and early drug development service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Lee is going to address the role of genomics in your treatment choices, new research on genomics and their benefits for you, and examples of how genomics help determine your treatment options. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lee. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and thank you to Cancer Care for uh, uh, giving me this opportunity to share and discuss this topic uh, with patients and their families. Uh, as uh, elegantly summarized by Dr. Tebus and Dr. Kerr, uh, genomics has a huge role in the selection of treatments uh, for patients with cancers. So in my practice, I am a, I'm a medical oncologist. I treat primarily lung cancers, and um, uh, but also in the early drug development program, I also treat a variety of other solid tumors depending on the genetic findings on the, uh, the tumors. So that my treatments may uh, are generally systemic therapies, meaning drug therapy or medical medicine therapy, and those uh, I, uh, would be targeted therapy or immunotherapy or chemotherapy or a combination of the above. Now, uh, we used to give everyone the same drug, but that's that's uh, sort of last century, and things have moved on uh, since. Hopefully, at a steady pace and, and hopefully uh, uh, to more precise fashion. So in terms of uh, routine treatment, we now try to be more selective, more precise, and that is the era of precision medicine. So some examples uh, that are already FDA approved um, for uh, starting with lung cancers, EGFR mutations, for example, if you have that mutation in the tumor, then the best treatment is an EGFR-targeted therapy. And that's uh, usually a pill that's, uh, that's uh, much more effective than chemotherapy or immunotherapy, and uh, that is the treatment of choice. It, it shrinks the vast majority of those tumors, but you've got to have EGFR mutation positive on the tumor testing. Likewise, another gene alteration called ALK fusion uh, drives about 4% of non-small cell lung cancers. And, and, and in this subset, uh, those tumors respond very well to ALK inhibitors. And the ones approved include uh, crizotinib, electinib, and seritinib, and so forth. And, that's, and those um, pills also have been proven to work superior compared to um, chemotherapy. And we know also from other extrapolated data that it works better than immunotherapy as well in terms of response rates and progression-free survival. So that really the identification of ALK fusion is uh, uh, really guides my, my treatment in, in terms of best therapy for that particular patient. ROS1 fusion is a very rare genomic alteration in, in about 1% of non-small cell lung cancers. And yet, if you find one of those cases, then the patients uh, generally will respond to a ROS inhibitor. And the uh, FDA-approved drug at this, in this setting is crizotinib. There are other newer ROS inhibitors in development in clinical trials. Similarly, uh, the brafenib-trametinib combination is approved in BRAF mutant uh, non-small cell lung cancer, just as it has, it was previous, uh, previously approved for um, uh, melanoma, and there are a few other combinations that's also approved in melanoma that really led the charge of BRAF targeted therapy, and that story has translated in lung, into lung cancer therapy as well. So that's also a an FDA approved uh, standard, um, and uh, apart from that, there are other um, biomarkers uh, in development, including tumor mutational burden and um, microsatellite instability uh, that will predict uh, responses to immunotherapies. So in colorectal cancer and other solid tumors with MSI, microsatellite high, 
the uh, immunotherapies in particular, either pembrolizumab for the MSI story um, uh, would work very well, and there are some durable responses seen in these patients who may be responding to uh, the therapy for many years in an otherwise advanced tumor that have very short, a very poor prognosis. So uh, as Dr. Kerr had explained, if you want to test for all of those things, then you'll eventually run out of tissue. So the best way to do so is doing a large panel test. And we generally use what we call next generation sequencing to conduct these uh, tests simultaneously. So all the targets that I've mentioned that, that are important to check in lung cancers and, and a few some other targets in other solid tumors, we can get all that information in one test with next generation sequencing. The use of liquid biopsy, looking at DNA from the uh, tumor DNA from the blood circulation, so plasma ctDNA uh, or circulating tumor DNA, uh, that is a new technology that's uh, evolving rapidly and has the potential to be incorporated into standard of care for lung cancers and other cancers. So um, liquid biopsy uh, can now also be used to conduct a large panel test with next generation sequencing and, um, and often with much quicker turnaround time. Uh, so therefore it's a useful tool complementary to the tissue testing we have. The newer research uh, in this front, apart from the ones that are approved, I've mentioned, uh, it's, it's really exciting and rapidly evolving. And that those include the uh, finding of a new uh, oncogene fusion called RET fusion. Um, and recently, my colleague Alex Strillen presented the uh, findings in ASCO uh, in the American Society of Clinical Oncology annual meeting this year showing uh, great response rates to an in investigational agent called LOXO-292 on the clinical, in the phase one clinical trial. And, um, and certainly there's further development in this field as well. Um, and, and also he's also demonstrated that uh, uh, similarly, RET mutations in thyroid cancers can also be treated successfully with this with this therapy. Uh, NTRAC fusions uh, also was uh, presented by um, uh, my colleague uh, David Hyman last year, and also subsequently published this year by uh, Alex Drillen and David Hyman, uh, showing that larotrectinib, which inhibits a rare oncogene called NTRAC fusion, which happens in about less than one percent of most cancers. Uh, work exceedingly well with major shrinkage in the vast majority of tumors. And, uh, and that incorporates all cancers from pediatric to geriatric populations. And uh, that drug is still being developed. That is not yet FDA approved. Uh, uh, and, um, and certainly more data uh, needs to be put forward, but certainly very, very promising data. And, uh, and HER2 mutations and amplifications uh, also are emerging new targets. And Dr. Both Dr. Tibbs and Dr. Kerr mentioned HER2 amplification in breast cancer, which has really transformed the, uh, the care of women with breast cancers in that field. It turns out that HER2-targeted therapy is also active in lung cancer, endometrial cancer, salivary gland cancers, and some of those uh, research have been uh, presented in the uh, ASCO annual meeting this year and also in another uh, publication in the Journal of Clinical Oncology with uh, TDM1 uh, being active in HER2 mutant uh, lung cancers. So those are just a few examples of emerging new research, and uh, this is actually happening in clinic every day. Um, and um, as an example, uh, a, a patient of mine I saw in, in his uh, 40s is a young and fit guy who just developed stage 4 uh, large cell neuroendocrine cancer, a very aggressive type of non-small cell lung cancer, refractory to chemotherapy. He was on a clinical trial. His cancer progressed. He had brain metast metastasis, lymph node metastasis, adrenal metastasis, lung with pleural effusion, struggling to breathe, and just had cancer everywhere. And he had some young kids, and he uh, and and really trying to fight the cancer really hard. And, uh, and fortunately, we did do MSK impact. That's our in-house uh, next generation sequencing assay at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And we found a very high tumor mutational burden. And based on that, he was matched onto the um, 
ipilimumab plus nivolumab immunotherapy combination uh, and had a dramatic response with uh, major shrinkage of all his cancers and uh, his, uh, which has lasted till this day. It's been about two years now he's been on immunotherapy um, and he's uh, back to uh, running in the gym and taking his kids to school and uh, doing some work. Uh, so life goes on for him. Uh, another uh, lady I saw, 33-year-old with uh, lung adenocarcinoma, and uh, she also only 33 and never smoked, uh, but, but uh, developed uh, really aggressive lung cancer and had chemotherapy. But in the course of the uh, chemotherapy, we did the MSK impact assay, and the next generation sequencing uncovered a ROS1 fusion. And based on that, she then, after the completion of chemo, she matched onto a clinical trial of a ROS inhibitor and uh, had a dramatic response, uh, which lasted uh, two, two years. And she's taking the pill uh, every day, uh, but she works as a school teacher and, and goes back to, uh, to work. Uh, and life and goes to the gym, so life continues for her as well. So I think this is, uh, those are anecdotes, but it really, those are real patients and their real lives. And next generation sequencing cancer genomics, this type of um, precision tool is being used on a day to day basis and really benefiting uh, some patients to a huge degree. And I think more research needs to be done to drive this field forward so we can benefit more patients. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Lee. That was really an amazing presentation and also wonderful examples for everyone to hear, um, really dramatic examples actually to hear. So um, this is uh, really, um, I can see the interest in this program to some extent. People have really wanted to know what is going on. So um, so keep listening, okay? And then we'll have questions for you as well. So thank you, thank you, Dr. Lee. Um, and our next speaker is Jessica Tarnowski, Ms. Tarnowski. She's a Jenna Counselor, Department of Clinical Genomics, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center. And Ms. Tarnowski is going to discuss the role of the genetic counselor and genetic counseling and family cancer syndromes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Tarnowski. Hello. It is a pleasure to speak with you all, and I thank you for your invita invitation to speak with you today. I'll start by giving background on genetic counselors. Genetic counselors are master-level healthcare professionals trained in genetics and counseling. The role of a genetic counselor in counseling in the evaluation of hereditary cancer syndromes includes the evaluation of an individual's personal and family history for concerning features of a hereditary cancer syndrome. Genetic counselors conduct assessment for various possible hereditary cancer syndromes, which is to say assessment of an individual to evaluate if their cancer has a hereditary component. A hereditary cancer syndrome is a predisposition to cancer due to gene mutations that an individual would have been born with that change the set of instructions for a cancer protection gene, causing that gene to not function anymore thus increasing an individual's lifetime risk for cancer, but not, by no means guaranteeing that that individual will develop cancer throughout their lifetime. This is a little bit in contrast with um, what the focus of this uh, conference has been so far, which has been on tumor genetics, but rather the um, set of instructions an individual would have been born with and the set of instructions that would be in all cells of their body. Genetic counselors coordinate and perform genetic testing if needed and, av and available, and we make recommendations for surveillance, prevention, and management for individuals based off of their genetic testing results. We also help to facilitate communication and information regarding hereditary cancer syndromes for at-risk relatives. So this would be children, um, siblings, parents of an individual that would be identified with a hereditary cancer syndrome. Our counseling process is informed by genetic risk assessment or a diagnosis if there is a known hereditary cancer syndrome in a family or in an individual. In an individual. Our risk assessment includes personal and family history, genetic test results, results from procedures or imaging studies. So for example, information regarding the specifics of an individual's tumor type, so triple negative breast cancer and that type of information. 
And furthermore, we engage in an individualized discussion about the aspects of a suspected hereditary cancer syndrome, including how it's passed along in families or the inheritance pattern of a hereditary cancer syndrome, family members that may be at risk for that hereditary cancer syndrome as well, and then benefits, risks, and limitations of genetic testing, in addition to the option that is always available, which is to not undergo genetic testing. This is all done to better inform the patient and allow them to make an informed decision regarding if genetic testing, testing is in alignment with their preferences, healthcare needs, and values. Referral to a genetic counselor stems from other clinicians, including oncologists and even primary care providers. Therefore, an important part is referring the right patients and individuals to a genetic counselor so they can get that information that will be helpful for them and their families. This can be complicated by the existence of multiple, varied, and oftentimes conflicting practice guidelines. So it's always important to talk with your physician uh, in regards to if a genetic counseling appointment would be helpful for you and your family. In general, when we're assessing for hereditary cancer syndromes, some features are more suggestive of a hereditary cancer rather than a sporadic cancer where there's not one specific genetic cause that we could identify. Those features can be things like an unusually early age of cancer onset. So for example, a woman being diagnosed with premenopausal breast cancer or breast cancer under the age of 50. Multiple primary cancers in a single individual. So if a woman was diagnosed with endometrial cancer earlier in life and then later diagnosed with colorectal cancer. Bilateral cancers, impaired organs or multifocal disease. So if an individual is diagnosed with bilateral breast cancer or with multifocal renal cancer would be examples of those. Clustering of the same type of cancers in close relatives, and I would say that this would be what we get most of our referrals for. So that would be when, for example, a mother, a daughter, and that individual's sisters were all diagnosed with breast cancer, which would be unusual um, and much more than what we'd expect to see in the general population. We can also screen for things like cancers occurring in multiple generations of a family. This would represent what we'd expect to see from the inheritance pattern of uh, familial cancer syndromes. And um, occurrence of rare tumors can also be suggestive of a hereditary cancer syndrome. The most common that we get referral for is ovarian cancer which in the general population, 1% to 2% of women will be di diagnosed with. But of those 1% to 2% of women, 10 to 15%, if not more of those uh, individuals, will have a hereditary cancer syndrome that we could diagnose through genetic testing. We can also see um, patients that have an unusual presentation of cancer, so males with breast cancer as an example and uh, cancers that have an uncommon tumor histology, so triple negative breast cancer, medullary thyroid carcinoma, and others. Cancer syndromes can also be associated with birth defects or other skin findings. So we can evaluate an individual that might have a rare cancer syndrome or um, multiple colon or stomach polyps and see if they have skin findings that would be consistent with a hereditary cancer syndrome. We typically do this alongside a medical geneticist that would be trained in those physical exams. Lastly, there are certain populations that have uh, founder mutations for hereditary cancer syndromes. Most commonly, we think of the Ashkenazi Jewish population, um, which has three founder mutations in two genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2, uh, that are commonly associated with hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome. So it's important uh, just to perform genetic testing for individuals that are Ashkenazi Jewish uh, heritage to screen for those various mutations. Genetic testing can be important to patients to inform their own and their family member risk for cancer, managing and reducing risk for cancer, and targeting individualized treatments as the speakers on this conference have suggested. And with that, I'll pass it back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Tarnowski. That was really excellent and very informative, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you.
And our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is the former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuing Cancer Centers of New York. He's author, researcher in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman is going to address understanding genomics, key questions to ask your healthcare team about genomic testing, and your follow-up care plans. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Hello, everybody. Uh, you've been given a lot of information, a lot of very good information, and some of it is, may seem very confusing when these are all uh, topics that are not on the top of all of our heads. Um, just keep in mind that in, in, in addition to all of the information about genomics, genomic testing, uh, targeted treatments, precision medicine, this happens in the context of having discussions with the surgical oncologists, the radiation oncologists, uh, in addition to the medical oncologists talking about, as we heard, last century's chemotherapy, and in addition to the targeted uh, therapies that we've been discussing on this call, a lot of information. These changes are revolutionary. I've been in cancer more than 30 years, and these are amazing. But it provides a ton of information and facts and decisions that have to be made. Um, and it's really important to be able to have a good discussion with your cancer care team. Um, because these decisions are so complicated, we usually think about a, a um, a process called shared decision-making, where a lot of information is presented and then there's a good discussion between the cancer care uh, provider and the patients and family about uh, treatment preferences or uh, the kinds of things people feel that they're willing to be able to do in their treatment in order to get a, a treatment that may be very, very promising. Uh, patients have had uh, some difficulties with some of these uh, these concepts. Some patients have felt very lucky to have a, a, a certain um, gene mutation or felt very unlucky not to have one. Some patients have told us that if they just think positively enough that they can actually believe that a treatment for a mutation that they don't have will um, help and that we haven't found so far. Um, we. We are in the, really at the brink of these really amazing discoveries, and that often means that we don't have information about the long-term effects of some of these drugs, although we are hoping that um, those are minimal and that we our, our main goal is to keep somebody um, in the game and alive having enough treatments so that uh, they can continue to get back to a real functional quality of life as it was discussed in the anecdotes that we've heard already. So I guess um, in an hour call, we're not going to be able to answer all the questions, but the most important thing is to learn what you can, read from really good, genuine sources that have information that is proven. There's a lot of bad information out there. Um, and have good discussions with your cancer care providers um, about what actually applies to you and your type of cancer. It would be really important to do that because a lot of the information that's out there may not apply to you. Some of it may. Some of it may actually stem from a different type of a cancer than you have, and that's one of the major uh, changes or paradigm changes between what we uh, did in the past and what we're doing now. So I, I guess the main message is get good information, make sure it's the proper information, and have good discussions with the treatment team about what applies to you and what doesn't and what the, the realistic choices are as far as uh, treatment. And then that, again, is provided in the backdrop of a surgical treatment, something often and often a radiation therapy treatment. So um, one of the other messages that we hope everybody receives is that we are part of the team that takes care of you all the way through care. So from the time of diagnosis, even the pathologist now has a much more active role. Most patients have never met their pathologist. Now they certainly may, or they're certainly um, getting much more information from the pathologist beyond the anatomic information, beyond the tissue type. But the team is there to take care of you all the way through, to manage your symptoms all the way through, and then to keep caring for you if uh, a treatment doesn't work as well as when it does. 
because of the um, late effects of these treatments are certainly something that we are going to learn more and more about as people are treated over the long haul. So the main question here is, uh, the main um, information here is get good information, make sure it applies to you, and have good discussions with the people that are caring for you so you can make the best decisions that are personally important as well as scientifically important. I'll stop there and turn this back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was wonderful and just a wonderful way to, to think about this and, and to actually think about your questions. And I, we are going to take questions in just about one minute. I just want to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to move on to your questions. So uh, some of you have already been posting questions, and we will give you information about how to ask questions, and we'll have lots of time for questions. I just want to say that with all of this, of course, there are the emotional, social, and practical aspects of dealing with cancer. So I do want to say a word about cancer care services. We are a national organization, so we provide um, help to people throughout the country, both financial assistance, practical help, counseling services, support groups, online support groups. And for those of you on the call who are international, we do um, we offer you often you will email to us, send us an email, or join one of our online support groups. Or some of you are listening to today's program. So we do have services for everyone, and please do take advantage of them. We will be in your materials after the program. You'll get an evaluation form, and you'll be getting all the references we've given during the call, as well as 800 numbers, websites, all those kinds of things that you need. But for now, I'd like to move us on to the questions, because I know there are questions right now waiting to be answered, and we have the wonderful speakers to answer them. So um, I'm going to ask um, Sandra if she would explain to all of you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your question, I'll explain to you how to get your, how to get your question answered. So Sandra? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit a question by clicking Ask a Question. And, and our first question from question is, I apologize. Our first question comes from Stephanie K. Your line is open. Thank you so much again. Excellent, excellent. Um, Caroline, thank you so much. Uh, I'm a 12-year breast cancer survivor from HER2 positive 12 years ago. My two questions are, the first one is, I had Herceptin, and I'm a survivor and um, completely cured. But my question is, can Herceptin be used in immunotherapy instead of chemo because of all the side effects from the chemo causing the peripheral neuropathies and chemo brains from the tax and the peripheral neuropathy from taxol? Secondly, I'd like to find out about the ATM gene. I was tested. It was negative for BRCA1 and 2, negative for BART, negative for Lynch. And I'd like to find out, because it's called a variant of unknown significance for the ATM gene, I was told, is it possible future of breast cancer, possible future of pancreatic cancer, or they don't really know much about this ATM gene since I did have a relative did have breast cancer um, uh, that we don't know if it was genetic or not since it was in the 1980s. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, so um, let's see. I'm going to ask Dr. Lee, do you want to address this in a general way? Because I think um, actually just, Stephanie, you know we have a bunch of breast cancer programs coming up. So if you can just address this in a general way, Dr. Lee, um, is that yes. possible? Or? Absolutely. Okay, absolutely. Uh, hi, Stephanie. So I, I, this is a great question, um, especially from a scientific research angle. Uh, Herceptin plus immunotherapy has not yet been studied carefully, but it is a very um, uh, thought-provoking combination, and certainly there's some preclinical science to also uh, back up that some potential synergies between between the two. So, um, but it hasn't. Uh, this is not an approved uh, combination therapy, and needs to be further investigated in clinical trials, both on the safety and also on the efficacy in HER2 uh, amplified uh, breast cancers and also other cancers. So, it's it's certainly um, something I'm interested in investigating, but it's not considered routine standard of care uh, yet at this point. But uh, 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 a 12-year cure from breast cancer is certainly very good, so I hope to uh, keep it up uh, 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 forever. And um, in the second part of the question is about the uh, the ATM 
uh, gene. So I'm uh, for for ATM VUS or variant of unknown significance. I'm not aware of any uh, particular familiar syndrome that's um, associated with this. But uh, however, uh, this is an evolving VUS. Is there's a lot of things we don't know, and it really also depends on the exact variant of of this VUS and the family history. I think a, a careful genetic counselling session. Uh, will be required for this to go through all that and mapping out the family tree. You mentioned a family member who had cancer. So that all needs to be um, looked into carefully through genetic counseling. Excellent. And Mr. Arnofsky, do you want to comment on the just genetic counseling aspect of that? Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lee. <laughs> Yes, certainly. So variants of uncertain significance, or VUSs, are things that we can identify in individuals at actually a very high rate when we do multiple gene panels. If you test more than 20 genes, there's probably a one in three likelihood that an individual will be identified with a variant of uncertain significance. And what that means is that when we read the set of instructions for the gene, we find a change in that set of instructions, but we're not sure if that change causes that gene to not function anymore or if that variation is just a part of the normal changes that individuals can have because not all of our sets of instructions are going to read exactly alike. Variants of uncertain significance are reclassified over time, so the wisest suggestion would be to check in with your genetics provider every year or every three years to see if there's any more information that can be had about variants of uncertain significance. Of course, as Dr. Lee suggested, um, family history can be important in assessing whether or not a variant of uncertain significance is worrisome, but at this point in time, we follow all variants of uncertain significance as negative results, meaning that there is not a hereditary cancer syndrome. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have um, another question in front of our online participants for Dr. Um, um, Tibis. Um, this question is, um, uh, could someone please reiterate the distinction between immunotherapy and targeted therapy? So Dr. Tibis, for you. Yeah, that, that, that's, a good, that's a good question. Um, immunotherapy can be targeted therapy. So targeted therapy in general is when when we try to find a drug or a substance or a treatment that is very specific against a very specific or individual change inside a tumor or cancer cell. And that is usually should be different than in the normal cells. Many of the cancer genes are actually our own genes. I mean, they're most of them, all of them are our own genes. So essentially what cancer cells do, they switch abnormally, activate or take out the activity um, of, of our own genes. So we have too many or too few of a certain gene, or, and with that, all the downstream consequences of that gene being present too much or not being present enough. So targeted therapy now tries to be very specific to go after a certain gene, a gene product, which could be protein, could be inside the cell or outside the cell. And immune therapy can also be targeted. So you could also go after specific molecular changes inside or outside a cancer cell. But the consequence of inhibiting, meaning taking out the activity or reactivating something, is that it has a bigger effect on the immune system. So you try to either inhibit or reactivate the immune system. So it could be, I would say, you could even say targeted immune therapy if we understand what's really going on. So immune therapies essentially, um, or the immune therapies that are approved these days are, I explained this, so cancer cells have a way to, to put an umbrella to shield themselves from being recognized by the immune system. Now, if you put a little, if you have a drug that takes out or that uncovers um, by interfering with this shield, uncovers the, the cancer cell, um, but it goes after a very specific protein on the surface of cancer cells. So it's very targeted to that protein, but that makes and takes the shield down. That makes the cancer cell visible again to the immune cells. Now you activate the immune cells, and the immune cells do their thing. So they activate another immune cells, then more come. So you, you have a cascade of activating the immune system. Excellent. Well, thank you. That's really, uh, so I hope that's helpful. And I know those questions will persist, but that's really helpful. Thank you. Um, I should also tell all of you that you can listen to this program on replay. So if there's something you want to hear again, it is on 
um, it, well, it's, I'm sorry, it's on as a podcast. It's available. It's also available on telephone replay, depending on how you've accessed the program or how you wish to access any replay of the program. Um, it usually takes about a day for that to be up, and then you can listen to the podcast of the program or the telephone replay. Okay. And I think we have another question, um, Sandra, I believe, a telephone question. Yes, ma'am. Our next question comes from Gail P. Your line is now open. Uh, yes. Uh, regarding a patient with uh, metastatic breast cancer to the bones, where the breast cancer was um, uh, hormone positive, HE or negative, um, and a uh, uh, bone biopsies, two bone biopsies, did not uh, give enough tissue to test those for the HER status um, and blood work was used, is that sufficient to determine that the metastasis is HER negative or should something else be done to um, determine that and would that change the treatment? Well, thank you for that excellent question. We, you know, we, I will let you all know, and um, at the end of the program, that we have many breast cancer programs coming up this month. We do have a program actually on metastatic breast cancer coming up this month. Just so you know that a couple of them actually, um, two. So actually, um, but I'm going to again ask Dr. Lee if he w- he wishes to address part of that, and if not, we do have a program coming up very soon that you could address. We will be sure to take that question again. But Dr. Sure. Lee, do you want to give yeah. it a try? Yeah, no problems. Yeah. So, so HER2 testing in breast cancer traditionally involves immunohistochemistry. It's a protein test on the tissue biopsy. So it was tested HER2 negative on the primary and on the bone metastasis. It sounds like they, it was insufficient. It wasn't, there was insufficient tumor for testing. Uh, blood-based testing uh, usually involves circulating tumor DNA. That's the liquid biopsy we talked about. That itself, while if it's positive, may be sensitive, might be, meaning it uh, might be specific, uh, accurate uh, for the um, uh, for the HER2 testing. It might not be as sensitive. So, uh, because the DNA shedding from the tumor into the plasma may not be high concentrations all the time, and sometimes the assays are just not sensitive enough to pick up the very low concentrations of tumor fragment, tumor DNA fragments in the blood. So um, sometimes a negative test is, uh, you don't know if it's truly negative for sure. Um, So therefore that is still considered experimental at this point in time. So um, those are the two um, strategies we use in terms of uh, getting her to done in, in breast cancer. So certainly further workup uh, is is uh, required, uh, and uh, I'd suggest speaking to the primary breast cancer oncologist about this caveat. Excellent. Thank you. I hope that helps. And um, do go back to your treating healthcare team, and that would be true for everyone on the call who asked the question. Now we have another question, which um, is from an online participant, um, and um, I'm going to ask both Dr. Lee and Dr. Teeps to address this one. Um, is, it under, is it understood why sometimes plasma DNA is detected and sometimes not? Do all solid tumors shed material into the bloodstream, and does this start immediately or only at a certain stage of tumor formation? Um, Dr. Lee, do you want to start with that one, or? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, so this this is a, a nice um, uh, follow up to the previous question about the blood testing for a genetic alteration. So we we know that um, uh, the uh, tumors uh, shed DNA, um, but the quantity or the concentration of the tumor DNA in the blood vary between patient to patient, cancer to pa- cancer, stage by stage, and there are other um, factors that influence shedding, including um, proliferation rate, histology, um, the site of metastasis, the number of metastasis, tumor volume is certainly a very big one, uh, but there's so many other factors, and also treatment itself uh, actually affect DNA shedding into the plasma. So according to a study that we did at Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is actually in press at Journal of National Cancer Institute, it's coming out in the next week or two, um, we have found in patients with um, uh, advanced stage lung cancers, uh, the 
detection rate using a small uh, 21G next generation sequencing assay is about 64%. So uh, roughly two-thirds of patients we can find DNA in the blood and one-third it's simply just not shed enough or, or the assay may not be sensitive enough to detect uh, those tiny fragments uh, of DNA, cancer DNA, that is. So, um, and we did some analysis and we found that if the patient was already on chemotherapy, um, then the, uh, the, the pickup rate is actually less at 43%, whereas if the patient is untreated, uh, then or at diagnosis or progressed on treatment as treatment has stopped, uh, then the detection rate was 75%. So 75 versus 43% detection based on the uh, tre uh, treatment difference. So um, there, there are various factors certainly involved, and um, and I generally perform the test or order the test at diagnosis before the initiation of treatment or at progression of disease when the prior ineffective treatment had stopped. Uh, that's, those are the time points where we have um, the highest detection um, yield for tumor DNA. Uh, so, so there's certainly many caveats, but it's not 100%. So even if you have a negative test, you don't know for sure that the tumor does not harbor any genetic alteration that you can treat. You still have to do the tissue. So the, the liquid biopsy does not replace the tissue completely, but it does complement the tissue because if you, if you have a positive result on the liquid biopsy, uh, it's usually very specific, and, um, uh, and you can then follow that up with, with treatment directly. So, um, so there are some caveats, and we're still doing a lot of studies to refine the use of this technology. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Tippis, do you want to comment as well? No, I think it was was very nicely said. I mean, this is the, the you still often need um, tumor tissue, liquid biopsy complements, and I think you know this is the current status. But in a couple of years, we once our our we may. For some tumors, we may never find DNA or material that we can detect inside the blood. Um, or maybe, I don't know where we'll be in 5, 10, 15 years, if we will have the ability to, to detect any kind of however small amount of cancer cells inside the blood or stool or somewhere. We have stool tests now already that can detect colon cancer, but it's not 100%. Um, so, so maybe in you know in a decade, we, we once our technology and our... Um, yeah, technology further improves. Maybe we're we'll able to find more and more and get more and more precise and get closer to 100%, but we're not there yet. Oh, excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Kerr, do you want to comment as well, just in terms of the the testing and all that? Do you want to comment on oh, that? Oh, sure. So the, the other two speakers gave really excellent um, responses to that mm -hmm. question. It's definitely a very cutting-edge technology in terms of liquid biopsies, and we're learning a lot every day. Uh, so in the laboratory that I direct, we do a combination of two different types of liquid biopsies. One is one that um, detects circulating tumor cells to follow patients over time um, to decide whether or not a treatment is working. So the number of tumor cells in the blood can help. Um, but we also do uh, targeted testing for, for um, genes that uh, are commonly mutated in certain types of cancer. So we have a melanoma test and a, and a lung cancer test. And it can spare, like, like the two other speakers had said, it can spare a patient a, a biopsy if we find a positive result. But if the result is negative, we can't say whether or not we're just missing it because the, the circulating DNA isn't there, and so then a tissue biopsy is done. Thank you. And Dr. Fleischman, do you want to just comment on the doctor-patient communication where you go back to your treating healthcare team and ask them the questions that you yeah, didn't get to ask here? Sure. I, I just to uh, reiterate what I said before, this is really complicated, um, and it requires good communication between all of the physicians and non-physician providers to get you the best information to understand what your personal preferences are and then put together a, a treatment situation that really makes sense for everybody. So just get good information, ask good questions, and uh, try to be part of the process, even though the process is changing from month to month. 
Thank you. I want to thank our speakers. You've really been phenomenal. This has been an amazing call. It's one that we're going to be replicating for different types of cancers in the next month or two, so there will be more programs on genomics, but this is the first lead, and I have to say our speakers have been it's a hard act to follow. That's all I can say. Just wonderful. And on all of you, I want to thank all of the participants as well. Great questions, a great participation on the call, great interest in this topic as well. And I do want to let you know that if you do have questions that have not been answered, how to get your questions answered. So there are things that we often recommend that you do. Um, first of all, your healthcare team is a great place to start because, of course, they know you the best. And um, so definitely ask them questions. Um, some of you may seek second opinions at um, some of the NCI-designated centers, and that's okay to do as well, and that's something that many many people do. You also can call the um, National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237 or visit their website at www.cancer.gov. They have a live chat feature, so many of you in the U.S. and internationally may like that because you can post your question, and one of their information specialists will get all the information they can and give it to you, and then you can go back to your treating healthcare team and ask them the questions. There also is clinicaltrials.gov, um, which is also, and you'll get that information from us as well, which is a wonderful place to get information about all the updated clinical trials that are going on. Um, but again, I think has been stated throughout the program, it is important to talk directly to your healthcare team as well. Any questions you may have, bring someone along with you so you have the extra set of ears as well. You'll all be getting a schedule of our upcoming programs. We have quite a few. Some of you have signed up for all of them. If you haven't, or if there are some on specific types of cancers that you've asked about today, so please do go ahead and sign up for them. And as we conclude, I don't want any one of you to think that you're alone in coping with cancer and coping with your worries or concerns. Um, I want you to, either you or your family or children or relatives or friends, please know that you can contact Cancer Care um, for uh, supportive help, both um, visiting, both calling us on our 800 number or else um, emailing Cancer Care as well. And you'll get that information with your evaluation as well. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.